very much for your son, Jesus Christ, who's come and died on the cross for our sins. We thank you for this time of year that we get a chance to think about your son and to think about his, his birth and all that that means and all of the theological implications and all the fulfilled promises. So, so many things, so many things. And so we, we just ask, Father, that during this time uh, that your spirit will be leading us and guiding us, allowing us to see exactly what you want us to see from your text this morning and that we may celebrate uh, your son, Jesus Christ, and that we may honor and glorify him. Uh, we just thank you and love you for everything you've given us in your son's name. Amen. So this may come as a shock to many of you. It kind of did me. Uh, the church has not always celebrated Christmas. There, there has been a time in which there has been a church and no Christmas celebrations. Uh, especially the way that we celebrate it today, uh, th- this is kind of a newer thing. But the church at some point did start celebrating Christmas, and so the question is, how did that come about? How did it come about that the church does something like this? So this morning, we are going to talk a little bit about some church history. Uh, I'm going to be honest, I-, I really don't want to talk too much about church history. I want to get to the text this morning. We're going to be in Luke 1. So I'm not going to give every detail. There's going to be a lot of things I'm going to skip. There's going to be some generalizations, and you're going to get a little bit of my opinion this morning on some church history. Uh, but I just want to kind of set the tone of, of how this celebration came about. So we have to go back in time. We have to go back before the Reformation. I know that for many of us, church history starts kind of around when Martin Luther Nails the 95 theses on the door, right? There was a church before that and has existed. And, and, and uh, we go back to even before Constantine was emperor, right? We go back to this, this group of believers who are being persecuted by the Romans. There was constant persecution from the emperors. They were not, Christianity was not seen as an acceptable religion, So not only did you have these persecutions from the outside, you also had these incredible heresies from the inside. And all of these heresies centered around the person of Jesus. It seemed like almost every generation, there was some new heretical view of Jesus. So the orthodox view is that Jesus is fully God and fully man. Two natures in one person. There were groups that said, no, Jesus was really two people inside one body. Like, he was like schizophrenic. There were some who said Jesus really wasn't human. He was like a ghost. There was other people that said he wasn't God. He was just only human. And you have all of these different variations of of who Jesus was, and and they were trying to take over the church and and lead away God's, God's people. Not only that, during this time, you had a lot of paganism still in the church. A lot of people still were doing some of the things that they were doing before. So, like, for example, in December, this was a huge problem back in the early 300s. When somebody would enter a church building, like, in December, they would turn around and bow to the sun and then get up and walk inside the church. Obviously, people said, you can't do that. That's idolatry. 
We can't have that. And so there was this constant push of stopping this idolatry. Some significant events happened after this. Uh, I imagine at the time this would have been a great relief and an answer to prayer. Us looking back in history said, it's an interesting thing that happened. You have a Roman emperor who claims to get a vision from God and that Jesus talked to him. Next thing you know, all the Roman soldiers are wearing crosses and you go from Christianity being a persecuted sect to now being the preferred religion. I imagine at the time, yeah, I think every one of us would have said, praise the Lord, we're not being persecuted anymore. This means that there was time, there was leisure. This also meant that now every single theological fight was now a political fight. Maybe not the best thing. But one of the things that happened was this emperor, Constantine, called together a group of church leaders to a city of Nicaea. There they kind of hammered out some of orthodox and, and tried to define orthodoxy. There was a guy there, by the way, who's by the name of Nicholas. He was a pastor, a faithful man, was persecuted for the faith. Other places called him St. Nicholas. He actually became the person that we now know of, the, the legend of this one, as Santa Claus. He was there at the Council of Nicaea. Interesting note. But what ended up happening was the church, as they're trying to figure out what do we do now? There's all of these heresies. There's still this, this paganism that, that's still kind of inside of the church. How do we squeeze out this paganism? How do we get rid of it? One of the solutions was we just fill people's year with Jesus. So much Jesus that you don't have time to do the paganism thing. And that's really what ended up happening was each day of the, or each, there, there were several holidays that you would celebrate different things concerning the life of Jesus. In the early church, or post-Nicaea, the big thing that they were really concerned about and they really celebrated as they thought was theologically significant was the visiting of the Magi and the baptism of Jesus. The birth of Jesus was just tacked on to that event. It really wasn't theologically significant. So some people think that the church thought that Jesus was born on December 25th. That's why they did it. That's actually not the case. Most of them said, no, he's born in the spring. This is just a time to celebrate Jesus. And yet it does happen to coincide with what was at one time a pagan holiday, the, one of the great pagan holidays. But doesn't a day get a chance to be redeemed, right? Don't, don't we have an opportunity here to squeeze out some of those pagan beliefs and talk about Jesus and think about Jesus? That's kind of how it started, right? That, that, that started back in the 300s. And I don't think that's a good reason for us to continue to celebrate the birth of Jesus just because somebody post-Nicaea council says we should do it. But I do think that there's enough about the birth of Jesus, significance about the birth of Jesus, of who he is, that at least calls for a celebration, doesn't it? And this morning and for the month of December, that's what we're going to do. We're going to encourage each other to celebrate the birth of our king. He is our king. This is our savior. If there is ever anyone to celebrate, it's him. And of course, the birth of Jesus is a significant event. It's an incredibly significant event. And when you even consider 
the fact of the truth <coughs> that we're reminded of each year of contemplating the birth of Jesus, it is definitely worth thinking about and celebrating. And so this morning, we're going to celebrate. And I don't know about you, but I know for me and my household, anytime there's an announcement of a new baby, guess what? There's celebration. So this morning, that's what we're going to look at, a time to celebrate. There's a baby coming. There's a baby announcement. So go with me to the book of Luke, Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, notice in verse 26. Here's this baby announcement. It says, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Now, the first question you've got to ask yourself when you read this is, what is the sixth month? The sixth month of what? Well, because we haven't been going through the entire book of Luke, if we would have read earlier, we would have found out that Elizabeth was with child with John the Baptist. And so this would have been six months after the conception of John the Baptist. So this is six months after that event that you find earlier in Luke chapter 1. And notice that an angel named Gabriel, uh, this is kind of unique with, with angels. Normally we don't get to know the names of angels, but we know this one and, and Gabriel. And notice that he was sent from God, meaning he, he's specifically gone as a, as a messenger. It's kind of an interesting thing in the Greek because the word Angel itself means one who's sent with a message. That's what the word means. Uh, So so when we're talking about an angel, we're not just talking about just a person. We're talking about this specific being that is not human, that that acts as a messenger, okay? But, But what's interesting is that in the Greek, that word was sent from... It kind of has the idea of, so one sent with a message was sent... That's kind of how, it's, how it reads. So he was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Now, to us, we know Galilee and Nazareth. We see this quite a bit. And for us, being so far removed from the time, there's really no significance for us. Okay, it's a name, right? We could show a map, and you'd go, okay, well, that's a dot on a map. I've never been there. Most of us probably haven't. And even if I do go there today... I don't, I don't understand the full significance of this town or even this region. This was kind of seen, Galilee was kind of seen as the, hmm, the backwoods, if you understand what I mean. Uh, they, they, they weren't necessarily seen as the most educated people. They, they, they weren't seen as the, the place where, where anything good would come out of this place. Right? The people kind of born there, they're, they're, they're brutish. Right? Today we would say they're backwards. This was the view. This is a backwards place. This is not a big place. This is not a huge place. Okay? The city of Nazareth was a very small town. Right? Very small. Very, very small. Maybe the size of like Jewel. Right? Very small. So this angel sent to this small town in this area that's backwards. To, to, to the original reader who would have read this and to the Jewish mind that would have read this, 
They would have said, Galilee, what's that place? That's a small place. Nothing of significance would ever happen here. No great person would come from this place. So verse 27, notice it says, To a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Now, just looking at verse 27, it's interesting that Luke uses the word virgin twice. The reason that he uses the word twice is because that's what she is. She was a virgin. She doesn't stay a virgin, by the way. We're not Roman Catholic and believe in the doctrine of the perpetual virginity of Mary. She does have other children. There's other places in the gospel where it talks about Jesus' brothers. That would be kind of awkward if all of Jesus' family was just born from virgin birth. She was just perpetually just popping out kids from virginity. No, no. The the sense is, this is before she's married. The the sense is to to keep her honor intact. The the sense for us as the readers is to say, whatever's going to happen, you have to understand that this is impossible what's going to happen. This cannot happen humanly. This This requires a divine element, a divine miracle. She is a virgin. Now, she's engaged, that's probably the best way of thinking of this idea of betrothed, to a man named Joseph. And what's interesting is that both Joseph and Mary both come from the house of David, meaning that their ancestry can go all the way back to David. But this woman is a virgin. That's important in this story. That's important for us to remember. Some people have tried to goof with the, and tweak the meaning of this word virgin to say, well, she's just a young girl who is just young. That's what this means, just young. That's not what this word means. This word means what it says. So, notice what happens, verse, verse 28. And he came to her and spoke, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Now, I know this might be a little bit difficult, but maybe you should use your imagination here. Just imagine for a moment. You're just doing whatever you're doing. And all of a sudden, an angel appears right before you. First of all, that would be incredibly startling, right? Every single person that's ever met an angel in the, in the Bible or seen an angel records it as being an incredibly petrifying event. Even the Apostle John, who knew Jesus, who, who saw the transfigured Jesus in the, in the book of Revelation, when he sees an angel, what does he do? He falls down and worships it, right? There are people that see angels and they, they are petrified and they fall flat on their face. So to see an angel is by itself incredibly perplexing, incredibly, uh, incredibly jarring, that this would have been jarring. You would have known when you've seen an angel. So just imagine that appears. Something so other, you've never noticed this before. All of a sudden, here it is. And then it gives you this greeting. Greetings, old favored one. The word here for favored means privileged, means blessed. Uh, It is not as some have translated this. Some have translated this full of grace. Uh, That is not what Mary was. She's a recipient of grace. That's why she's favored. She's a recipient of it. 
She is not full of grace as if she is a source of grace, right? Actually, that idea of Mary being full of grace comes from the Latin Vulgate, which is the Latin translation of the Koine Greek. And Jerome, when he was, put, when he was trying to figure out how to describe this in Latin, put the phrase full of grace. Unfortunate, unfortunate. No, th- this is one whom God looks down upon because of his mercy and his grace and has decided to bestow some sort of favorable outlook, some sort of privilege on this one. This is not, she did not earn this. It's not that she's favored because she was such a good girl that God says, who shall be the one that's going to give birth to Jesus? I know, there's that good girl who won the contest. No, she's an object of his grace apart from any merit. So, oh, favored one, you're privileged. And notice what it says next, the Lord is with you. That would have been incredibly encouraging, but also very, very strange. Here's a small girl, this young lady from a small town. All of a sudden, an angel appears to her, says that she's privileged by God and that God is with her. So we can kind of understand then her response. I think the English is uh, interesting here. It says, and she was greatly troubled. In English, we would say that's an understatement. Yeah, she's troubled. Yep, that's probably the, that's a way of saying this. The word for trouble here is confused, perplexed, startled, right? So put all of that together. That, that's what troubled is here. She is beside herself, right? And then, and then notice what she says next. And she goes, and trying to discern. Once again, that is incredible understatement trying to discern, the sense is she's racking her brain here. She is thinking, what kind of greeting might this be? Why is he saying this to me? What is happening? Why is there an angel here? And why is the angel saying this to me? We could think that she's thinking, why is God looking at so favorably towards me? What, what, What is God going to do? Why do I need God with me? What is he about ready to tell me what's going to happen in my life? By the way, this is not a normal occurrence. That's why it's recorded here. This is a very supernatural occurrence. I know today it's kind of vogue for Christians to claim to see angels. Um, It's happened. I suppose it's possible, but very slightly possible. This is very unique in the history of mankind of a mere person seeing an angel. And so Mary joins the ranks of one of these few people that sees an angel. And she's sitting there going, what? What kind of greeting is this? (laughs) Why would he say this to me? I imagine we all would have that same sense of fear, startled, perplexed. Why is this one saying this thing to me? So notice what Gabriel says. This is remarkable. Notice, he says, verse 30, and the angel said to her, do not be afraid. This is a common thing that angels say to people because to see an angel would be a very scary thing. It's seeing something other, something that's not human, something that represents the holiness of God. It's frightening 
there, there's this sense that, that, that here's something different from me that, 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 that's sent from, from, from the Lord. And so the angels will constantly say, do not be afraid. Why? Because it's incredibly fearful. It's incredibly scary to see an angel. And notice what it says. It says, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Meaning God is pleased with her. He is, he's looking at her with grace. He, whatever's going to happen is, is an object of God's graciousness and of his mercy. So notice what, what he says, verse 31. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a child, and you shall call his name Jesus. Now, remember, in the beginning part of the, the passage, Luke called Mary a virgin twice. Why does he have to do that? Well, because of what's said in verse 31. Behold, you will conceive. So the immediate question would be, how can a virgin conceive, right? By the way, the, the way that the angel talks about Mary, God has found favor with you. That, that's in the aorist. Uh, meaning that, that's, a, that's a specific point in time. That, that, that's, that's what you are. That's the state you're in. You're in the state of, of great, God's graciously looking at you. Th- then, oh, favored one has this idea of that, that you were favored in the past and that favor continues today. And so it, it's likely that when Mary hears this, oh, favored one in the aorist, and then you will conceive, it's possible that Mary thinks like, in the near, near future, not when I get married, this one that's going to come will be the church. No, she's thinking this is going to happen now. The verbiage kind of, kind of alludes to that. But here, here's what it says. You will conceive in your womb and, and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Um, a lot of discussion by theologians who need to get a job. Uh, talk about... What happens here? This is a miracle. There's a lot of things that probably go on that we don't, we don't fully understand. But it seems to me that when, when the angel says you will conceive, this means that the pregnancy of Mary, I mean, other than the fact that she's a virgin, would have been a very normal pregnancy. It would have been exactly like what we think of when we think of a pregnancy, carrying the baby full term and all of the product that goes with that, all the stuff that goes with that, everything that comes with that, the, the, the baby's growth and, and nurturing, meaning that th- this baby is human, that this is a human baby. Now, we know that this is going to be Jesus, who is also the God-man, and so whatever that means, whatever that looks like, that the second member of the Trinity is able to add on humanity inside of the womb of, of Mary, but this one that is born is going to be fully human. A fully human birth. This is not an accelerated, this isn't a, some strange thing. This would have been exactly like a pregnancy because it was a pregnancy. What else is really interesting is then this next part when it says you will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. Once again, theologians trying to justify a scholarly paper and scholarly works have spent a lot of time trying to argue, is this a prophecy or is this a command? To be honest, in the wash, it all comes out the same. His name's going to be Jesus. However, it is in an imperative, 
And it does appear to have the force of a command, meaning he's telling Mary, you're going to conceive even though you're a virgin, and you're going to bear a son, and this son's name will be Jesus. Now, we we know this name Jesus. It's pretty common to us, especially since we're in the church, right? We've talked about Jesus numerous times. Mary would have heard something a little bit different because she wasn't speaking Greek. Jesus is the transliteration of Jesus' name, right? So that's what it is. It's Jesus. Just the transliteration in English is Jesus. Well, that's a transliteration of the Hebrew, which is Joshua. Jesus' name would have been Joshua. The question is, what does Joshua mean? Well, Joshua means the Lord is his help, right? For us, when we see the name Jesus, we, we, we think of Jesus as the Savior. To us, this is one of the reasons why we celebrate, right? The coming of Jesus is not just the birth of somebody significant in human history. This is the birth of our Savior, the one who died on the cross for our sins. This is remembering him and celebrating the life that we have in him. So you'll call his name Jesus. And then this next one is great. Notice in verse 32, it says, and he will be great. Sometimes we we kind of skip over that he'll be great. It's interesting. There's no no qualifier to that. He's going to be great. Have you ever noticed that? A great what? He's great. What does that mean? He's great. There's going to be no one like him. It is greatness in an absolute sense. Of course, Jesus is great to me because of all the things that Jesus offers me from his death, burial, and resurrection. So to me, when I see Jesus, he's a great benefit to me. But Jesus as a person, Jesus in his personhood and in his titles and in his ways, it's defined as great, the greatest. That's it. It's great. He's Jesus the great. In absolute terms, no one can compare to him. In in, in power, in title, in what he can command. No one will even get close to him. Even in popularity. Jesus is the most popular. He is great. He is famous. In who he is as a person, in his attributes, in his title, in his position, it's greatness. He will be the great one. Jesus the great. Now imagine you're a small girl from a small town. All of a sudden, an angel appears to you and starts saying, you're going to conceive a son. I'm a virgin. I don't even know how this is possible. And he's going to be called Jesus, and he'll be great. Just imagine what Mary would be thinking. Imagine what you would be thinking. Great. Now, the angel's going to go on and describe this greatness, this unparalleled greatness. And notice what he says. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. Now, he'll be called this because this is who he is. He's the Son of the Most High. He'll be called this because this is what people will acknowledge publicly about him. He will be called this because this is his title. All of those things are why he's called this. This is who he is. He's the son of the Most High. This is what people are going to say about him. He's the son of the Most High. This is his title. 
That's great. You think about greatness, true greatness, to have that, to be that, the son of God. Now, when we think of this idea of son, do not think that there was a time in which Jesus was not. That's not what the Bible teaches. It teaches that Jesus has always existed. He's eternally existed. When we think of this idea of sonship, I I find it helpful to think of, of, of even our own children. I'm going to use Ezra for an example, because when I think of Ezra, I think of a Hilbert. Ezra has the essence of Hilbertness. You talk to Ezra, he's a Hilbert. You cut him open, he bleeds Hilbert, right? He's a Hilbert. He's my son. He's like a little Caleb Hilbert. That's what he is. He carries that essence, that nature. He's a distinct person. He's not actually me. But man, same nature. There's things that he does that I do that I perfectly understand what he's doing. Because he's a Hilbert, right? And I know Hilberts. So in the sense of sonship, it's this idea of the same nature. The same nature. The Meaning that Jesus is made of the, is, is of the same nature as of the Father. They're both divine. They're distinct, yes, of course, but they're divine. He's the Son in the sense that, not that he's lesser than the Father, but that he has voluntarily submitted to the Father. He's the Son of this one, right? We call him the second member of the Trinity. And then notice this next phrase. He's the son of the Most High. This speaks of not only of <coughs> the greatness of the Father, but it speaks of the idea that he is the sovereign one over everyone. He commands everyone. He is over everyone. He's the Most High. There is no other authority higher than him. He is the great sovereign Lord. And this one is the Son of God. Then he goes on, and it says, And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. This is significant. Significant. Jesus is a Jewish Messiah, born from the Jews. There was this promise from a long time ago that God gave to David, that your descendant will sit on a throne. He he will be this great king. He, He will be the anointed one. We see throughout the rest of the Old Testament, what this kingdom will look like, how it will be an everlasting kingdom, that this one will restore Israel, that this will be the great one, that this is the Messiah. Mary has just heard that she'll give birth to a great son who is God and is the Messiah who will sit on this throne. Now, Jesus is the king. He's not sitting on the throne of David now. That will happen in the future during a time that we call the millennial kingdom. So when Jesus comes back again, he will reign on the earth. And where will he reign from? He will reign from this throne. He will be a Davidic king in Jerusalem, ruling Israel and the world. This is who he is. Even though this wasn't fully realized at that moment, it will be fully lived out. He's the king. And notice what else it says. It says, and he will reign over the house of Israel forever. He's going to reign over Israel. And that word for forever, guess what that means? Forever. E- eternal. 
forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. You can add as many evers as you want. It doesn't stop. It means he will perpetually be king. Remarkable. And then it says, and of his kingdom, there will be no end. He's going to reign that way forever. Nothing's going to stop his kingdom. So Mary hears this. By the way, just think about when we're celebrating Jesus. We're not just celebrating a guy. We're celebrating our Savior, who is also God and is the King. Now, his kingdom will come. We're anxiously waiting for that, which to me is exciting. He's going to come again. He's going to come again, and then he's going to be king, and he's going to reign, and no one can conquer Jesus. No one's going to be able to outmaneuver Jesus. No one's going to be able to, to, to figure out a way to politically oust him. He'll never be impeached. He doesn't have to worry about succession of who's going to take the throne after me. He will reign forever. And so I think about that anticipation of Jesus coming again, and I think about the fact that my wife has already wrapped my Christmas gift and then said, you can touch it if you want, which only heightens the anticipation for Christmas Day of what is inside of that package. And as I think about what's inside of that package, I think that's just a microcosm of the expectation of the expectation I have when Jesus is coming, right? So Mary hears all this. Obviously, we have the New Testament. We've thought about this several times. This is Mary's first hearing, and so notice what she says next. She, she then says to the angel, how, how will this be? I, I, don't, I don't understand how this is going to happen. And she goes, since I'm a virgin. See, she under, she's hearing this thinking, the angel's talking. She's going to be pregnant real soon. Real, real soon. How is this possible? She's not thinking when she's getting married. Because then, because then she would have said, well, that'd be great when I get married to, to Joseph. And then, then this kid will come out. No, she says, how is this going to happen? Because I'm a virgin. Not to mention the fact of the greatness of, the, of this one that's going to come. How can I give birth to the Son of God? How can I give birth to the Messiah? How can I give birth to someone who's eternal? Yeah, how will this be? How, how is anything you just said going to happen? Now, I don't see this as Mary trying to stall, of Mary saying, this is impossible, I'm not going to do this. I don't see this as doubt. I think it's just as, could you just give me some information of how this is going to work? This is, not a, this, is not a, this is not a question of doubt. It's a question for information. So notice what the angel says. The angel says to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So whatever happens with Jesus and Mary during that nine months, we know that the growth of that, of that little baby inside of Mary, who is also the second member of the Trinity, will be overshadowed, will be watched, will be nurtured by the Holy Spirit. And this will all be by the power of God. So God is the one who's causing the growth of this. It's miraculous. It's miraculous. And so therefore, the child will be, will be born, will be called holy, the son of God. This one's going to be set apart. No, one, no one's going to be like this, 
ever. He's unique. Now, Mary doesn't ask for a sign, but the angel sees fit, maybe because the Lord told him to, to say this to Mary, but sees fit to give Mary a sign. She didn't ask for one, but he gives her one anyways. And he says, and behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has, con- has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. So the angel is saying, look, this is what's going to happen, but I just want to let you know your really old relative who's, not, who's past child-rearing ages, who's been barren her whole life, is now pregnant. And, and the sense is this is because of what the Lord has done, because notice what he says then next in verse 37. He says, for nothing will be impossible with God. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't need us or our help to accomplish his will. He is sovereign. He's in control. He can, he can have a baby born to a virgin. That is nothing to him. That, that is simple. To us, it's absolutely impossible. It's absolutely impossible. To him, no. All things that are consistent with God and his character and his will are possible for him, right? He could do all of that. He's powerful and sovereign. He doesn't have to write a letter and ask, ask people, hey, do you think this would be okay? He's not worrying about polling. He's not worrying about the logistics of what this will look like. He just says, it will happen, and I don't need anybody to green light this. I'm the ruler of the universe. Now, Mary, when she hears this, just incredible, Mary said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Mary hears this. Whatever her mind understands, what it doesn't, her response seems to be pretty immediate, right? Pretty thoughtful. Well, I'm the servant of the Lord. Whatever the Lord wants to have happen, I'm okay with it. Now, there's some who've tried to say that Mary understood the, the implication that now all of a sudden she was going to have a kid outside of wedlock and the shame that would come from society and all these other things, the logistics of having a baby. I don't know if Mary understood that. I don't, I don't know if she could have understood that. I don't think Mary really cares about that. The sense you get here is, is that what the Lord wants for me? Is that what the Lord has for me? All right, I'm his servant. The word here for servant actually could be translated slave. I'm the Lord's slave. I'll do whatever he wants. Incredible response. Incredible. So as we think about celebrate, celebrating the birth of Jesus, and we think about some of the things that are said here in this text, we should, we should be incredibly thankful and we should rejoice because God is in control. He is sovereign and he is going to accomplish his plans through Jesus. And this time is a time of celebrating because of Jesus and because it is a recognition of God's sovereign control and that he has this all figured out. And so this is, yes, Jesus is born, and yes, Jesus saved me, and those are great things to celebrate, but it's also a reason to celebrate of the greatness and glory of God. 
and when we think about some of the truth that we see just in this text, really don't have time to discuss all of the things that are said here. But just think about this. Jesus was born to a virgin, miraculous birth. In this text, we could see that Jesus is fully God and fully human. In this text, we could see that Jesus is the greatest of all time. I think the kids call that what? Being the goat, right? Greatest of all time. That's what Jesus is. He's the greatest of all time. Jesus is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. We didn't even get into all of the implications of all the prophecies that the angels talking about and making reference to. Jesus is a king. He'll sit on the king. He'll sit on the throne of David forever, and, and he'll reign forever. Friends, th- th- we're talking about celebrating the great one, Jesus. And if anyone deserves a celebration for anything that they do, it's Jesus. And if he is the king of the universe, then shouldn't the universe also be involved in this celebration? I mean, how blessed is that tree who has no mouth and no ability to think, no ability to communicate, to be plucked out of the cold, brought inside, and be dressed and adorned with symbols of thankfulness, symbols of praise, metaphors of Jesus. How blessed is that inanimate object to get to praise the Lord Jesus Christ in the midst of the celebration of his people celebrating the king? I know that a lot of us have had mixed years this past year. For some of us, it's been a great year. For some of us, it's been a difficult year. For some of us, we go, yeah, it's a lot of things have happened this year. And it's amazing that at this time, yes, we reflect over the past year, but this is a time for us to celebrate Jesus. This is a time for us to forget about the past year and to think, Jesus, the Savior was born. This is our time to celebrate because of the one who was born on this day. May the Lord give us both the will and the ability to do all that we heard today. Let's go ahead and let's pray. Dear Gracious Father, we thank you so much for your son. We thank you so much for everything that you've blessed us with. We thank you for your word. <coughs> we thank you for this account that records uh, the, the announcement of your son, Jesus. Uh, we just ask, Father, that we would celebrate Jesus. And, and yes, that it would, we're thankful for this time, but we pray that we would just be in one constant state of celebrating Jesus for who Jesus is, the great one. I just pray, Father, that you would, uh, you'd allow us to go home safely, come back uh, later on today uh, so that we can learn more about your word and more about the things that are said in your word. We thank you and love you for everything you've given us. In your son's name, amen.